Welcome to Beyond the Balance Sheet, the podcast that helps advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families understand the complexities of issues related to our mental, physical, and emotional well-being. Our co-hosts, Arden O'Connor and Diana Clark, will interview a series of guests on a range of topics, providing informative content and practical tools for professionals and families to consider. Here are your hosts, Arden and Diana. Hi, and welcome to an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Patrick Knapp, who is in recovery from religious abuse personally and is here to talk to us about the conceptions and probably some misconceptions we have about cults and religious organizations and where the intersection of those two meet. And he is currently, he's completed his doctorate in gradual theological foundation and his doctoral thesis was entitled A Survey of Religious Abuse and Recovery. So he comes at this both from an intellectual pursuit and a personal pursuit. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what this conversation is because in addition to those two things, he is also a professional life recovery coach and educator working primarily with those who have suffered with spirituality abuse. So welcome, Dr. Knapp. I appreciate you joining me today. Well, thank you, Diane. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation we'll have here today and hope that uh, your listeners will uh, garner uh, a good deal from what we have to um, uh, share and uh, find hope and encouragement. I love the hope part. So let's start with a little bit of less hopeful and move into hope. How's that? Why do people, why are people attracted to what we're calling a religious cult? Or maybe we should even start with what is a religious cult? Well, yeah, that's a very good question. And I think I would answer that by saying it's a um, very, not uncommonly, a very damaging sort of experience that people have as opposed to a life enhancing experience um, within a religious context. And it is always for the individual who experiences religious or spiritual abuse, a unique experience to them, while there is also some commonalities also that people experience. So why do people, what is it about those organizations that are attractive to certain people? Well, I think what I would suggest, what I do suggest to the folks who we work with, and we've worked with many people from a broad base of backgrounds, everything from former Mormons, former Jehovah Witnesses, former Scientologists, people that have come out of uh, religiously abusive uh, Christian churches. Um, we've worked with a broad range. And the reason why people very commonly find themselves in a group like that, are it, it's a multiplicical, it's a, it's a um, it's a combination of influential factors. It's a system issue that originates, I would suggest, from their family of origin, but also it is 
part of the a mind control process that groups frequently will exercise. And it's met, it's also a part of the personal needs that people have that they think they can get fulfilled within a unhealthy religious system. So it's a combination of things. It's not a simple answer. I wish it was. Uh, sometimes people will suggest oh, it's all about mind control, all about thought reform. It's about what others do to you. My suggestion is that that's not an adequate answer. That's part of it. I agree with that because I can't help but wonder, is, isn't one of the fundamental needs a sense of belonging, a sense of community? So it may be misdirected, but the need seems to be profound. Yeah, and that's a very good observation. I think that um, there is uh, actually a book in the process of being drafted by um, somebody that I know that suggests directly that topic. And that is that um, I think she's going to title it sudden to the effect of uh, dying to belong is what mm -hmm. she's going to title it. And it's out of her personal experience of many decades in a very religiously abusive group. And her basic contention, and I certainly agree, is that it's a relational, it's a set of relational needs that people have. And unfortunately, some groups, many groups, don't truly offer healthy forms of how to find those needs met. But the needs themselves aren't unhealthy. It is, in Absolutely fact. Absolutely not. Yeah, no, we're, we're wired for that. We're wired to be relational. That's right. So would you mind telling us a little bit about how you ventured into this expertise, your personal story? Yes, I will give you a flyover uh, because it really began better than 50 years ago. Um, I had um, a personal experience from 1970 forward to 1984, where I was involved in a very, what I would term a very unhealthy religious system that identified as a Christian group, but was very unhealthy in the way they expressed their Christianity. And I was involved in that for almost 14 years, separated from family and friends, uh, did a lot of sort of things that people typically relate to, oh, you were in a cult, which is a term typically I don't really like to use. I prefer to use uh, a term, just a religiously abusive organization, because uh, cult generates ideas of Jonestown or uh, Waco, big fires, poison Kool-Aid. Um, and the majority of unhealthy religious systems that are out there don't have anywhere near that extreme. And certainly my group that I was in did not have that extreme. So what about it in the initial stages, if you can harken back that far, was attractive about it? Was it portrayed as a real community that would accept you for who you were? Or were there certain guidelines of living that were appealing? 
Well, the combination of things, again, again, for different individuals, it's going to be different things that particularly attracts them. For me, um, the group started off initially just as a small Christian church that met in a home. It uh, had a lot of uh, folks in it that were my age. I was in my uh, early 20s, uh, 19 actually is when I started. And I was in it up till I was 33 years old. And there were a lot of other people my age. It felt like a serious community of Christians that wanted to do things for God, uh, wanted to live a Christian life, a serious Christian life. And that was appealing to me. Certainly the leader, looking back at it, was also kind of a father figure to me. And mm-hmm. that was appealing. But then the group went south, so to speak, about three years in. And the leader had a so-called um, vision or revelation that he was truly not married to the woman he was married to, but really he was married in the spirit to somebody who happened to be about 25 years younger than him. And that's where the group really started to go more um, cult-like and resulted in separation from uh, family and friends that were outside of the group and became much more invasive in determining what we thought, how we felt, what occupations, what education meant or the the lack of education, uh, the the importance of uh, obeying the leader at any price, um, but it developed over the course of time. That makes sense, gradually, gradually. Yeah. It's, it doesn't sound like your the organization was fully formed. You were part of the forming and then it grew beyond where you were, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Got it. So how do people leave organizations that have in some ways been doing a lot of thinking for them? How do people get to that moment and how do they recover from that? That's a really good question. And that's probably the the second most often question that we're asked in the work that uh, my wife Heidi and I do at Becoming Free. And uh, the answer I would suggest, again, is there's a multitude of uh, reasons why people will exit, but very commonly what they find is that there's a a form of snapping emotionally and intellectually where they kind of come to a place where it's like, ah, why didn't I see this before? And um, there's a a breaking of their um, commitment to the group. Sometimes it's because of some sort of Um, demand that is being made that is over the top of them. Um, Sometimes it's a revelation, so to speak, that that they have about the group leader or about how the group runs. And as a consequence, the the price to be paid to leave uh, is a lot less than the price to remain. And as a consequence, they start to shift out. So for somebody like you who spent a good part of his young adulthood in that the consequence to leave is leaving the people you've had relationships with, I would imagine, right? Well, certainly. And 
part of the challenge for former members after they get out is rethinking what kind of relationships did I really have? Mm -hmm. What were the relationships really like? Were they all that meaningful and deep and significant or were they really indicative of a lot of control and manipulation? And that takes a period of time to kind of process. I can see that. Tell us about your workbook. Talk to us about the journey that people tend to go through. Yeah. Well, the journey, uh, as I say, frequently will begin at uh, a sense of disillusionment leading to a um, uh, occasion of snapping where they say, I'm out of here. This is it. No more for me. And not uncommonly, they come out in one of two ways. They come out either very angry as fire-breathing dragons. I want to get even. I want to take a machete or some other sort of uh, very damaging a piece of equipment to the uh, leader. Um, or they come out very frozen, uh, much like an iceberg, with their emotions uh, very buried because they're just they feel totally overwhelmed and they just want to hole up. They want to become hermits. They want to forget about the spirituality that they experienced in the past. And they may very commonly want to scratch any conversations about God, about spirituality. So it's usually one or two extremes. Uh, hopefully what they find as they come out is they come across people that provide them four central things that they need. And one of the things we've found in our work, people need uh, to borrow hope from others. They need um, to find encouragement from a variety of sources. They need insight as to what happened and why. And they need to find a way to build their resilience for their healing journey. So hopefully they come across people that can provide at least at some level those four needs i love your expression borrowing hope because it is true sometimes as friends as family members we are seeing the hope when that person can't see it for themselves so if, yeah i like that expression yeah it's uh and we all at different times, whether we've been through a religiously abusive environment or whether we're just going through a hard time in our life, we need to find people that can genuinely loan us hope because we don't find it within ourselves. And that takes a period of time before that changes. So do you work with people who tend to want to stay connected to religion or is that also on a continuum? Some people are saying I'm done with religion. Other people are saying I want facets of it. Yeah, it, it, and the answer is yes. We work with both. Uh, there are some that say to us, don't talk to me about the Bible. Don't talk to me about scripture. Um, I want to work with what does a healthy relationship look like? Uh, others that'll come to us and they'll say things like, we really want to unpack the group's attitude about women and men and women roles. And we 
still want to remain connected with um, valuing the Bible, can you help us with that? Uh, in which case, we help them with that. It depends on where they're at and what they need in the moment and what they what they share with us as to where we go with them. That's great. What haven't I asked you, Dr. Knapp? One of the things that uh, we are frequently asked is, where do I go for help? Who is it that has the education, has the experience uh, to be able to help us? And, and I think certainly um, Heidi and I offer uh, a lot of support and help to people, but there's a lot of organizations. Um, the International Cultic Studies Association is a large group of people, professionals, uh, mostly made up of uh, clinicians, educators, former members, um, researchers, uh, and they provide uh, a good deal of help. They are not a specific Christian organization per se, um, but they offer a great deal of help. So certainly, what are the resources out there? And, you know, it's very different today. When I got out in 84, out of the group that I was in, January of 84, there were not many resources available. Nowadays, they're all over the internet. There are many really good books that have been published. Um, there are many organizations that offer at various levels, different sort of hope, encouragement, insight, and uh, assistance toward building one's uh, resilience for the healing journey. So that I think is an important thing for people to hear, that there's a lot of help out there from there's a variety a of, of sources. What would you recommend to family members who seem to feel like they have lost a member of their family to an organization that no longer allows that contact or encourages it? Yeah, I think uh, one, they are not alone. You know, an awful lot of the people that we speak with are folks that have experienced that sort of thing. And I've heard this many times over the years where um, families have lost loved ones. So one, they're certainly not alone. And two, again, there is hope for them. Um, I have um, oftentimes spoken with family members where they don't feel like there's hope because it just feels like they've been cut off entirely. Sometimes we talk about strategies. Okay, how can you reconnect or try to remain connected at some level? Um, but I think those are important things for family members to draw from every bit as much as the former members themselves, because they need hope, they need encouragement, they need insight. Why did this happen? Uh, am, am I at fault? Is the group at fault? Is the is the family member who's involved at fault? And of course, my re my response typically is, well, you know, there's a lot of culpability to go all the way around, but there's also a lot of hope to go all the way around. All right. Well, I'm going to call this recovery from religious abuse reasons for hope, because it sounds to me like hope is an essential feature of the work you do and the message you are bringing that 
that kind of experience does not need to derail human. It can be part of a hopeful journey. So, Well, I think one of the things that we try to encourage people with, and it's very hard when they first come out of groups to be able to go there, but that there's, um, there is ultimately going to be profit from the pain. And that will take time to see, but I can speak from experience for myself and for many of the people that I've worked with, I can really see a lot of benefit. It's really caused me to, to drill down deeply um, on the subject of my own spirituality, to drill down deeply on uh, what does a healthy relationship lo look like? What is a healthy spousal relationship, a ch child relationship um, look like? And that's been of huge benefit, huge benefit. And, um, but it's not something that somebody who's re recently come out can get their arms around at all. That takes sometimes years before they can years. do that. Yeah, that makes sense yeah. to me. Well, thank you, Dr. Knapp, for being our guest today and for the work you do. Well, thank you for having me. And again, I would certainly encourage people to visit our website, and that's becomingfree.org um, is our website, and becomingfreealloneword.org, um, and they can find additional resources there. Uh, we have quite a few resources uh, for people that um, are in need for uh, finding recovery from religious or spiritual abuse. Thank you. Thank you for that. For our listeners today, this has been an episode of Beyond the Balance Sheet podcast. If you like this, please check that box like on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Balance Sheet a podcast designed to help advisors, clinical professionals, and affluent families solve some of their biggest medical, psychiatric, and emotional challenges. Visit beyondthebalancesheet.com to read more about our guests and resources and sign up for our newsletter.